0: Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk.
1: Money Talk.
0: Good morning and welcome to Wednesday. Great to be with you. This is Peter Lewis with Money Talk on the 23rd of August. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. Thank you for listening and for making this one of the most popular financial podcasts in Hong Kong. In today's business and finance headlines, President Xi Jinping called on South Africa to join him in boosting the country's combined influence on international affairs in the global south. He told South African President Cyril Ramaphosa in Pretoria, ahead of the BRICS summit, which starts today, that the two countries should strengthen strategic cooperation and promote representation of countries in the global south. China is expected to push the BRICS block of emerging markets to become a full-scale rival to the G7 this week. Shresha Thavisin, a former property tycoon, has become the first new leader to take charge of Thailand since 2040, when former Army Chief Prayath Chan-osha staged a coup. He's an ally of former Prime Minister Takshin Shinawatra, who returned to the country yesterday after years of self-exile. Thailand's stock market and currency jumped following the end of months of uncertainty since the May election. Japan said on Tuesday it will start releasing more than 1 million metric tonnes of treated radioactive water from the wrecked Fukushima nuclear power plant into the ocean. Hong Kong chief executive John Lee condemned Japan's move, describing it as irresponsible. And the SAR announced Tuesday it will impose an indefinite ban on Japanese seafood imports from 10 prefectures and publish the results of daily tests on other food from the country starting on Thursday. On today's programme, I'm joined by Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP, and Frederick Chu, Managing Director at Magnum Research. With a view from Japan, is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website. You'll find it at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street Tuesday, US stocks fell in quiet trading ahead of flash PMI data due today and the Fed's economic symposium at Jackson Hole on Friday. The indices were weighed down by weakness in the shares of banks and retailers. The S&P 500 edged a third of a percent lower to 4,388. The Dow slid 175 points, that's half a percent, to 34,289. The Nasdaq Composite eked out a small gain of 0.1% to close at 13,506. Chipmaker NVIDIA, which is due to report earnings tomorrow, ended the session down almost 3%, erasing an earlier gain. U.S. Treasury bonds were mixed Tuesday, with the short end of the Treasury curve remaining under pressure after Richmond Fed President Tom Barkin suggested that U.S. economic growth could re-accelerate before inflation calls, and he talked up the prospect of future rate hikes. On Tuesday, the two-year yield rose further above 5%, adding four basis points to reach 5.05%. However, the 10-year bond yield eased slightly from a more than 16-year high, dropping two basis points to 4.33%. In the currency markets, the PBOC cut the onshore yuan central parity rates by 5 pips, to 7.1992 per dollar. That's 1,111 pips stronger than market consensus, and that's the largest gap compared to consensus since it was first started to be polled in 2018. The yuan is trading at 7.3066 in Hong Kong this morning. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index rebounded from a seven-day losing streak, which had dropped it to a nine-month low and put it in a technical bear market. It gained 168 points, or 1%, to end the day at 17,791. The reversal came after the 14-day relative strength index fell to 27.3. That's below the 30-point threshold that technically indicates the market is oversold. The tech index rose 2%, recouping some of the almost 13% loss from the past two weeks. And the China Enterprises Index of the largest Chinese listings in Hong Kong rose 1.1%. It has plunged 11.4% this month to become the worst performer among 92 global equity gauges. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite rose 0.9% to 3,120 after earlier in the session, hitting its lowest level in seven months. Looks like the market's going to decline again, though, this morning. Futures markets are pointing to a loss of about 150 points for the Hang Seng at the Open. That's 0.8%. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter. At Peter Lewis Money Talk. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis. On this Wednesday morning, let's welcome our guests. Pleased to have with us in the studio, Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP. Morning, Carlos. Very good morning. morning. And also with us, Frederick Chu, who is Managing Director at Magnum Research. Morning to you, Frederick. Hi, morning, gentlemen. Um, Let me start with the China um, economy. A bit of a disappointment, really, wasn't it, Uh, this week after the latest policy decision by the country's central bank undershot market expectations, the pboc Uh, announced a reduction to the one-year loan prime rate of 10 basis points but left the five-year rate unchanged. Uh, Carlos and Frederick were you surprised by this given particularly all the talk we've had over the last few weeks about uh, the central government acting to boost the economy stabilize the housing markets get people to go and spend and consume more make mortgages more affordable here was its chance to do something and it
2: sort of passed it by. Um, in all honesty, I was a bit surprised. uh, But in hindsight, I think it does uh, make sense um, that they decided to deliver a a smaller um, rate cut this week. Um, The bank sort of cited three reasons for that. The first reason being, of course, there's a lot of uh, pressure um, on the currency front. So delivering an outsized uh, rate cut would have only exacerbated depreciatory pressures on the yuan. um, And they are sort of trying very hard to Um, fight uh, one-sided depreciation expectations, so the timing wasn't the best. Mm -hmm. The second reason was uh, banks had expressed concerns about uh, declining Net interest margins. Um, and so they are lobbying for another uh, deposit rate cut if uh, the central bank is to do more aggressive uh, monetary policy easing. So um, that might have been a concern as well. They're still sort of uh, ironing out uh, some of the dif- their differences, and hopefully, we'll see both deposit and uh, lending rate cuts um, in the second, in the remainder of the year. And the third uh, point is that there have been some issues in policy transmission, um, so it would have been an ineffective outsized rate cut in any case. Um, and so it's likely that they will try to um, prioritize some of the macroprudential easing or other measures um, before they deliver that rate cut in order to maximize um, just how much of that extra liquidity flows into productive sectors of the economy as opposed to just going to SOEs and an uh, and, and evergreening of, of, of loans
3: yeah i think the market it's definitely disappointed uh probably because they put a, a, too much of uh, of uh you know expectation uh, by the at uh, the uh, uh, after the approval uh, meeting last month um that you know the market expects you know the central government would put in you know more solid policies to support the economy i think um the dilemma for the central government is if you look at the uh the uh, you know the the u n rate uh, and, and and the and the you know the rate gap in between china and and, and u s you probably realize that uh you know china is just not ready to you know pour in you know a substant- substantive amount of uh, monetary easing at this point of time uh given the you know the um, the real estate crisis uh, country guard etc uh, i think the you know the central government, you know, has has more to deal with uh, or consider before they put in more, you know, uh, sort of substance. I think the two parts of the of the um, uh, the, the markets are looking at this. One side of uh, of the uh, consensus is uh, China has still got loads of uh, policy to implement, but it's just not ready yet. So more or less same as you know what I just described. Um, and the other front, it's basically they just run out of uh, you know uh, ideas or you know. Um, uh, you know, uh, 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 policies to 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 come up with. Uh, you know, in my opinion, I think uh, what China do have uh, much to do uh, in terms of uh, you know uh, stimulating the, uh, the the current situation, uh, but they will probably wait until there is a more clear cut road on how the. Um, the the Fed fund rate is it's going uh, uh, towards uh, that, which means uh, it's going to be somewhere around uh, the end of the, the end of this year, and probably if there's more policies really coming out, uh, it probably takes a quarter or two uh, to get digested into the real economy. So uh, it's still a wait and see approach.
0: So on the three reasons uh, that you both gave for 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 the inaction, if you like, uh, by the PBOC, let me dig into them a little bit more. On the yuan, first of all. Obviously, we know the PBOC is pushing back really hard now against the slide um, in the yuan. It's created a short squeeze here in Hong Kong, making it harder for, for speculators to borrow. I presume it, it doesn't necessarily want the yuan to go up. It just doesn't want it to go down so fast. But why wouldn't the PBOC be pleased, or the government be pleased, actually, with the sliding you are It's what the economy needs, isn't it, given that it's slipped into deflation. And if you look at, for example, over the water in Japan, a weak yen there has done wonders for, for the economy. So why wouldn't, you, why wouldn't the government actually be pleased to see the Yuan sliding?
2: Because they have a sense of déjà vu. <laughs> For those of you that will remember, um, in 2016, um, the, the 3% devaluation um, of the yuan tr- translated into a protracted period of almost two years of portfolio outflows, and they had to burn it through one trillion um, US dollar in reserves at the time um, just to defend the, the, the currency. So um, although I do agree, the goal is very much to keep the currency um, – weak in trade-weighted terms, meaning Mm -hmm. that they shouldn't be Um, Stronger than all of their other um, competitors on the trade arena, Um, but um, they do not wish to see one-sided depreciation expectations because once you hit certain key resistance levels, the market just keeps testing the next one. So Mm -hmm. 7.3 is breached, the next level 7.5, and after that it's 8. And they, um, well, it wouldn't be the most productive use of another trillion in US dollar reserves. Um, So they want to avoid uh, that situation. That's why they are... Uh, managing um, the expectations, but they are keeping the currency weak in trade-weighted terms.
3: Yeah, I'm thinking the same way. I mean, I mean the fund flow, it's, uh, the, you know, a bigger consideration. Uh, mm-hmm. I think a weaker currency, obviously, would do good to exports. Uh, but then the fund floating out of, uh, you know, the, the the country, which has always been the case, uh, which is something that uh, more concerns the central government as a, as a broad base. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, actually, if you look at the currency, although it's weak against the dollar, it's not actually that weak against other currencies, really, is it, on a, on a trade-weighted sort of basis? It's mainly, which suggests it's partly because of, dollar strength at the moment because of the huge yield right. gaps that we're seeing
3: that's right yeah it's always been the case for for for, uh, for rmb uh it, it's always just uh, you know g- going against the u.s dollar no matter it's getting stronger or weaker uh that, that's one uh same earlier uh for, for china i think uh, you know when the u.s uh rates uh, you know Fed rates got the more clear-cut uh, outlook uh, and the, when the when the currency against the US dollar gets more stable uh that's would that would be t- uh, that would be the time for them to you know uh, really put out some more you know useful uh policy towards the uh, the market
2: mm.
0: so on the second reason then that that uh, that you raised banks profitability it's, it's sort of hard to imagine isn't it really that Beijing should be too worried about how profitable the banks um are but is it is it a big concern i mean is it a big issue for 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 the banks
3: Yeah, honestly, I I think for banks in China, it's never, to me, it's it's never very, you know, Good sector to to invest into just mm. because of you know it's all central owned, all the uh, controls and everything yeah it's all SOE basically and you got a bunch of uh, the provincial uh, and municipal banks that has uh, you know outstanding uh, you know bad debts you know um, at a very you know high level uh, whereas you know when anything comes up it, it's just the um, the uh, state-owned banks is going to bail them out um, so all in all I mean in a in short term you know there, there's some you know trading ideas over over the bank sector. But for for the longer term, I, I think it's it's not a uh, healthy economy. Uh, over, over the bank sector, uh, China has been putting a lot of uh, you know regulatory uh, strings towards the banks uh, in controlling you know uh, deposits, uh, controlling investments, wealth management, etc. Um, given the CBRC has um, you know better, well-established uh, you know regulatory framework as as opposed to you know securities brokers or third-party uh, lenders, third-party wealth managers. Um, so th- that that would be one of the good aspects of, of the banks. But overall, from financial healthy is uh, I personally don't see it uh, you know as, as a very very uh,
2: you know um, uh, prosperous mm-hmm. yeah we, um, we so we, we are not expecting that the central government will m- instruct banks to cut dividends or, or anything like that um, mm-hmm. that's the main reason why some investors have um, historically held uh, banking stocks of course on a valuation basis very cheap and mm-hmm. so the market is pricing in an erosion in, in profit margins. Um, but my understanding of the situation is that central, uh, uh, big uh, state-owned banks um, will be asked to s- step up and uh, rescue, um, you know, n- areas where there's stress. So there's problems with some of the developers and exposure yeah. to um, unsold units at regional level. Um, so they might have to uh, incur a loss in terms of uh, M&A activity if they have to take over a regional bank or with a with a poor balance sheet. Um, and so in anticipation to that um, erosion in, in 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 profits they they don't want to see more measures um, you know that that might uh, potentially cascade into into a systemic issue down the line so um, mm-hmm. central central bank is not really concerned uh, about the pr- profitability of these banks um, although I'm sure some government agencies pension funds uh, the um, the sovereign wealth fund they will have exposure to chinese bank stocks because of the, that dividend that i mentioned earlier so i don't think they have an interest in in eroding you know the ability of these banks to to pay dividends but um, they they do need to um, iron out details with them and make sure that uh, the banks are in a position to step it up and support the economy when needed Okay. Now, the, the third reason you mentioned policy transmission. I mean, this is the real difficult one,
0: isn't it? Because whatever the uh, the PBOC does, whatever the government does, how does it impact the consumer and persuade um, the the burnt out consumer to go and spend when they're they're so nervous about what's happening to the economy? This is it seems to me that this is
2: the big challenge, isn't it, for for the Chinese government at the moment? This is the elephant in the room, I would say. Um, The most straightforward, easiest way to do it would be to do cash handouts. Um, And you would have thought that if they are able to test everyone twice in one day within a period of 24 hours, that they can do cash handouts i mean the, mm-hmm. pop, the population would be extremely cooperative if that were the case <laughs> they will queue up wouldn't they for a, they, they much longer ju- than ju- you're ju- going to queue up to have your injection exactly not grateful productivity but i, I think they <laughs> they have the means to do it um it seems to be an ideological issue with uh you know uh, capitalism and um china was of course very vocal um in terms of criticizing the U.S.'s response, saying that you know the U.S. Um, unemployment was structurally high because Americans were lazy because they were mm-hmm. given cash handles by the government, um, so you have to shift the narrative uh, a little bit before they can do that, and that takes time. Mm. Yeah, uh, I think printing money—it's just
3: difficult in in China now. So you know it's no matter i think currently the um, the current policy that come out to stimulate you know buying houses or you know buying goods and services it's not just it 's just not effective enough uh, because you know you you won't you won 't decide to buy a house just because the mortgage uh, ratio has been you know mm-hmm. um, uh, 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 lifted up. Um, so I think, uh, you know, employment is one thing, the confidence on the economy, it's uh, the, the other thing. If you look at US, the consumer confidence, it's, you know, strong enough to uh, give people the, um, the incentive to to spend money. Um, but in China, it's just not the case.
0: It, it would meet, actually, all the requirements, wouldn't it, In all the concerns? Because if you did a cash handout, it's not going to weaken the yuan, so it's not going to have an effect on the currency. Uh, it's not going to affect banks' uh, profitability either. It, it is the one that would sort of like uh, tickle as me- all of the boxes that the government is worried about in terms
3: of stimulus it's just too many people in the country mm. that you know how much and how much you're going to hand out and, and how many times you're going to hand out um if you look at hong kong uh you know the cash handout, it's it's going to give you a short-term boost on, on on the action uh but you know if it has to be long lasting then you probably have to go go in the macau way that you know you give ten thousand uh, mm. on on a yearly basis which is not that feasible if you mm. look at the uh, population uh in in, in china and uh, given the m2 supply on uh, you know uh, it's you know the, the 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 central bank tried to try to manage the uh, m2 supply at the at the 9% level uh, which i you know I, I just don't think it's it's something that the uh, the uh, chinese government is fond of mm. doing
0: Now, here's something interesting. The United States has called on China to be more transparent about the state of its economy. The request comes after the National Bureau of Statistics abruptly suspended publication of youth unemployment figures, which it's been publishing since 2018. The age 16 to 24 category has seen unemployment march steadily higher for six consecutive months to hit a series of record highs. It then culminated in a new all-time high of 21.3% in June, and then July's figures got cancelled. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said these are not, in our view, responsible steps for global confidence, predictability, and the capacity of the rest of the world to make sound economic decisions. It's important for China to maintain a level of transparency in the publication of its data. Um, So, is he right, or is it none of their business? What do you think?
2: Well, I think they are right to some extent. Um, the incident is not isolated, um, so it coincides with an increase in um, these sorts of um, cancellation of data series. Um, I think FT had a good chart where they had estimated the number of data series that had been discontinued um, in the in the past few years, um, and sort of um, it's alarming because it it's difficult to follow um, economic developments in a country. So you have uh, visibility that deteriorates and that makes the country less investable so to some extent um, i think uh, there's an argument to be made that that was not the right thing to do absolutely i don't think that uh, the entire uh, population aged 16 to 24 um, that might have been surveyed um, is necessarily seriously looking for work i mean some of the high schoolers um might just be looking for part time, so it, there are some issues with that statistic. Um, that and, and I think absolutely they should improve the quality of their statistics. And if this is an issue, they should uh, provide an alternative. But but they the, could keep publishing it though while they do that, couldn't yeah, exactly, they? Exactly, just keep publishing it. Uh, or you know, I think market is tends to be rational over time, even though they have you know some ups and downs. Um, so they just keep publishing the statistic. Uh, use the network of domestic uh, research analysts to explain. Mm-hmm. Um, why they are doing certain things. uh, But cancelling the data whenever it doesn't suit you. Remember a few um, uh, last year during the uh, March uh, National People's Congress, they also decided to just delay the GDP release by a week or two. Um, These sorts of measures uh, don't instill confidence in the market, and so it's not going to help.
3: Yeah, I I mean, the request, it it makes sense. Um, But if you look at the action uh, uh, from, from China, <clears throat> Excuse me uh, it, it's understandable. I mean you know information in China is always designed mm-hmm. um, for their audience so you know whether you publish the the youth employment, it's really how they want to present this to the uh, people within China, rather than, you know, giving much more of a, you know, um, a research impact to, to the rest of the world.
0: But they say at the same time, they want international investors. So if you want international investors, it's, you've got to provide them with the information. Yeah, but that, that that's they...
3: always conflicting in, in, in saying, saying like this. I mean, it, you know, China wants international investors to invest in the country, but only within the certain <laughs> aspects of transparency mm-hmm. that they can provide. They feel Feel comfortable with. Uh, that's always been the case. Um, I mean, you know, if you look at the, I, I think, I think what we can uh, at least, uh, you know, be sure of is uh, the 20% youth un- unemployment. Even if it's published, uh, the actual unemployment uh, n- uh, numbers will be, you know, f- way beyond this. This uh, whatever being been being, mm-hmm. being, being published. Um, but considering you know the the structure of the of the labor market in china you have slashes you have you know self employed uh, you know the, the the young people going to, you know um uh you know uh, opening their own business or, or being a kol that's you know it's not really something uh, to me like uh, very worthwhile in in in, in analyzing the, the the actual uh labor market um but uh yeah, that's that's the case for for for, for China, I guess.
0: Uh, there's two other areas I can think of where it, it will be a huge help if we could get more statistics and data. Not that we're going to get it. One is on the true state of indebtedness of these local government financing vehicles. And the other one is these trust companies and the scale of the losses there on these wealth management yeah. pro- products and how much um, have been defaulted on. I mean, they, they would be real numbers that would make a big difference, wouldn't they, and, and help people's confidence in the economy. Even if they were bad, it, it would at least give more transparency because presumably this is getting a bigger and bigger problem, isn't it? What's happening in the property sector, Mm -hmm. the way it's spreading to the the trust sector?
3: Yeah, the political culture of of China, it's, uh, you know, uh, try your best to tone down all all these negativities. Uh, uh, The the, the trust company issue, it's definitely something, you know, worth worry about, um, maybe more than the uh, the, uh, youth and employment. Uh, you know, uh, we, 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 what we currently know is some of the, uh, you know, uh, financial groups of, of the that, that runs the third party uh, uh, wealth management's. It's probably going down uh, because of that, but we don't have a, a very clear outlook into you know how much exactly that we are looking to write down.
2: Yeah, I. I I'm not as worried as the market. I think, uh, you know, last week we saw a big sell-off and uh, the market was pricing in effectively not only a, a Lehman moment in China, but contagion to other, other parts of the world. That's not likely to happen. Um, we've seen almost all of the recovery in the housing sector in the first quarter being ero- um, eroded. um, um in the second quarter of this year. Um, So we're back to where we started at the beginning of the year. And so when you have a very contractionary real estate sector, and remember, a lot of these trusts have exposure. I think there are some statistics that suggest that about 25% um, of their assets are tied to real estate. Naturally, they are going to see uh, issues emerging if they have so much exposure to the sector. Um, And, of course, the shadow banking, I mean, it's not unique to China. the, uh, every country has a shadow banking sector, and the shadow banking sector is not bad per se. It provides um, lending to s- sectors of the economy that un- are under serviced by banks. And in China, banks are state-owned, so typically state-owned enterprises get better services than private enterprises. So the shadow banking plays an important role in China, and of course, um, with um, the growth of the of the housing sector um, and banks not servicing uh, private companies and individuals. Well well shadow banks stepped in to fill in that, that gap. Um, And so they do have exposure. So I think it's all related. I think rather than focusing on um, contagion, what they need to do is focusing on stabilizing the housing sector, ASAP. I think that's going to be quite key. Um, Doesn't help in in all honesty that they are not providing statistics on local government um, finances, of course, also linked to the real estate sector. Nobody is selling land, so you can extrapolate that uh, local governments are also having a bit of a financing squeeze, and they're working on that. but, um, but at, the, at the end of the day, all of these issues stem from the slowdown in the housing sector. Um, mm-hmm. And by the way, the slowdown was self-inflicted. So although we have the three seen, red lines, yeah. the three red lines, so uh, balls in the government's court, 100 uh, yeah. uh, percent, macroprudential easing should be the way forward. And I think they, they can, if they want to, stabilize the sector
0: so w- the 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 uh, the c s r c the the regulator the PBOC, it called in the big banks, the big financial institutions, and the stock exchanges for this big meeting. The message was increase lending, lend more, maintain the pace of loan growth. Where could banks lend then that would make a difference that they 're not doing um, at the moment that would help the economy and would help turn things around
2: the the private sector um, that 's where um you see the biggest decline in in credit growth Uh, that's where you see the biggest declines in fixed asset investments um to give you uh, just some some data um um um, private uh, fixed asset investment was down uh, minus 0.5 percent soes are still investing around seven percent um so they are still they're still doing their job and going and getting out the loans so it doesn't help to loan more to SOEs. SOEs are already maxed out in terms of their ability to invest and churn out output. It's a private sector. And, of course, uh, within what, sort of that minus 0.5% uh, year-to-date, year-on-year contraction in fixed asset investments, a lot of that can be traced back to a minus 8.5% contraction in real estate. Um, so I think anything that uh, pertains uh, corporates investing in real estate, um, mm-hmm. you know, the poster child is ov- obviously uh, all of the logistics and, uh, you know, SF and... Uh, yeah, you know, new infrastructure in, in so real estate infrastructure, but tied to the logistics. That's typically what uh, most uh, analysts that want to remain <laughs> bullish on mm-hmm. the economy will highlight as as an opportunity. Uh, but it, it, there's really an issue with the private sector investment here. Yeah, I think
3: the private corps uh, they do not want to borrow uh, because of weak demand. Um, the property developers they cannot borrow so you know, due to the the, the 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 crackdown um so i think if uh, these two streams are being uh, uh, stuck then that there's no way for the banks to to lend. I mean, it's, consumer lending it, its just uh, uh, not 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 uh, not in scope here.
0: We need to free up or the government needs to free up the private companies a bit more as well, doesn't it? Because at the moment all you ever hear is more and more of them being fined. We had another one of the consultancy firms, I think it was Mintz uh, last night, got another big fine. Um, all we hear about is private companies being sort of really beaten down at the moment. So we need to find a way or the government needs to find a way to encourage them to be more entrepreneurial you will build their businesses and invest and not feel that they're going to have their profits appropriated by the government or, you know, have some sort of crackdown done on them.
3: Yeah, I think the property market uh, plays a major role in, in all these chains. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a very, you know, for, for Chinese people, you know, almost six, uh, 60 or 80% of their investment go into the, 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 the property market. And, and buying property, it's the biggest consumption of lifetime uh, for, for everyone. Um, so, if the property market it's um, you know going down uh, like uh, what's you know uh, at, at the current level it 's just um, you know going to cause a you know a, a chain re- chain reaction uh to us all sort of that um, and what can save the property market at the moment it's you know it 's all about money i mean it's, it's how much they can uh, keep leveraging on. Um, redeveloping of the, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the existing, uh, you know, um, the, I mean, the old town areas of, of the of the municipal is going to help, but um, mm-hmm. you know, without um, the. Um, uh, you know financing uh, you know uh, window to, to open that there's no way they can achieve that um, so uh, you know it, it's, it's really uh, you know up to how the central government uh, is, is, is going to loosen up this brand.
0: Let me finally turn our attention to the BRICS because President Xi Jinping is in uh, South Africa at the moment um, there's going to be the BRICS Summit starts today. The four BRICS countries, of course, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. They're talking about expanding it uh, to a considerable number of countries, also trying to make it much more politically active to rival the G7. What, what do you think, first of all? I mean, should the BRICS... I mean, it was initially just a term, wasn't it? It was just a label for uh, for these originally four countries, now five countries, but it's sort of becoming um, an economic forum now, and, and China, if it has its way, wants it to become also a political
2: forum. What do you think of that? Uh, easier said than done. I think um, there was a place and time for a lot of optimism around, but I think it was Goldman Sachs that coined the, t- the term. It was, yeah. Um, yes. Um, and so, the, obviously, the global economy has uh, changed significantly since then. Um, all these countries are very different. Interestingly, China is at the same level that Brazil was uh, when Brazil entered its uh, its middle income trap in terms of uh, um, per, gross per capita Um, income levels and so for for china it should be a lesson um how to sort of avoid middle income trap and 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 um you know becoming a bigger version of brazil um in the current uh, global environment i can see why they would want to um hype up the political clout of BRICS, but the reality is that um they do account for a large proportion of the population, of course, but if you look at the G20, it's a much more important platform. Um, so I think that uh, G20 um, is going to continue to drive uh, the policy agenda a bit more seriously than um, anything that the BRICS can achieve as a group, even if um, this you know, notion of South-South cooperation and the multipolar world is something that I believe is beneficial for the global economy and something that um, – China would benefit from as well, so they will they will pursue actively. But um, BRICS just might not be the most effective way to do that. Mm.
3: Yeah, I think for China, it, um, apart from BRICS, it's just any anyone that's uh, non-US, non-European, uh, it's it's going to be more and more important for them, uh, mainly on the uh, you know technology investments uh, mm. because US and and, and Europeans. Uh, going to you know invest less and less into this um, into this area, so it's imminent for you know China to attract uh, you know investors from other areas. Uh, BRICS could be they take their opportunities, uh, you know yeah. Middle East maybe. Uh, yeah,
2: Saudi they, they yeah. They've, they've been asking Saudi to step up their game of, in their yeah countries. of course. But again, if you start including Saudi Arabia and other countries into the BRICS basket, you dilute sort of the impact of the BRICS message. So I think that there are other multilateral platforms that mm. might. Serve this goal uh, more efficiently. Yeah,
0: and if you have countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, Argentina, Indonesia, into it, they're such vastly different countries, aren't they? It sort of seems, how on earth would you get them to agree? They have such different philosophies. They are just at such different stages of economic development. I mean, it's hard enough to get five countries to agree. How, how on earth would you get these twenty or so countries to agree on anything?
2: It's hard enough to get China and India to agree on anything. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's, it's
3: true. Yeah.
0: So it's um, it, but so you don't see it as becoming a real competitor to the G7 as China would want it to be.
3: No, I, I don't think so. I mean, for for China, the um, the, the way they do things, it's less on a you know formality of of a group or you know organization. Um, you know, it can be a brick summit, but then you know, the, all the conversation is 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 uh, is one on one. You know, as long as they get what they want, or both sides get what they want. Um, that, that's more important than you know, whether it's a bell and roll or you know, uh, G, G, whatever. Uh, it's not really that important for, 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 for the government.
2: Yeah, the best way for China to increase its cloud is to ensure its economy overtakes the U.S.'s economy in absolute terms. That's where China is going to get yeah. its cloud from. And that is not happening if you're growing at below 4%. Yeah. Right. Well,
0: very interesting uh, observation to end on. Thank you both very much. You heard Carlos Casanova, who is Senior Asia Economist at UBP. Frederick Chu, who's Managing Director at Magnum Research.
1: Peter Lewis is money talk.
0: I'm joined now by Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Morning, William. Good morning, Peter. Um, Fukushima, Japan, on Tuesday said it's going to start releasing more than a million metric tons of treated radioactive water from the wrecked Fukushima nuclear power plant into the ocean. That's b- brought strong uh, condemnation from China and also um, here in Hong Kong. Uh, Chief Executive John Lee said it's, uh, it's highly irresponsible and they're going to start banning fresh seafood from 10 Japanese prefectures uh, from Thursday, tomorrow, and also test food uh, every day. From, uh, from from other regions. Um, when we spoke about this before, you, you, I remember you saying that you didn't think that Japan had handled this in terms of discussions with its neighbours particularly well. Um, have things improved at all since then?
1: Uh, no, they haven't. And I think this comes days after you saw Prime Minister Kushida meeting with President Biden and President Yoon of South Korea. At Camp David in the U.S., and that was a big moment for trilateral relations. And that's now in question because the Korean population is no, you know, no happier about this than the Hong Kongers or folks in China. And so, I think in many ways this is clearly a bit of a geopolitical albatross for Tokyo. And the timing of this again is unfortunate because you do have this moment where we had this this trilateral summit in the U.S., uh, a moment where. China is trying to basically, in many ways, mend fences in the, the region. And here you mm. have Japan taking a step. That's upsetting neighbors at a moment when Japan is trying to improve trade ties uh, with, with the region. So the timing could not be worse, arguably.
0: So has it undone all the goodwill that, that happened at Camp David? Because that was quite a significant moment, wasn't it? Getting Japan and South Korea together, talking to each other again, and this trilateral agreement saying they're going to meet now every year
1: right well i mean certainly it could because one of the interesting things the dynamics here is that president Yoon in korea is a reasonably unpopular president prime minister Kishida in japan is reasonably reasonably unpopular as well and i the, the korean population has not really bought into the idea that korea should be improving ties with japan at a moment when the south koreans believe that south korea is doing all the work and japan's doing minimal amounts of work and here you have this this water release which will not help that i i just find it amazing that 12 years after the fukushima crisis we're still dealing with this issue and it just speaks to the problem that japan has been slow walking this for more than a decade and now it's again it's become a geopolitical albatross for the nation
0: should should it be focusing on what the international atomic energy agency says and they've done a two-year study and say this release this release meets global uh, safety standards there's no evidence that the the release is going to cause damage to to fish so why is it well first of all why doesn't japan talk about that more but secondly i'm wondering why other countries are making such a big deal about it given what the IAEA has said.
1: you make a fair point because basically what is japan doing it's releasing about 500 olympic sized pools worth of irradiated water over 30 years so you can argue that this is a negligible uh, amount of radiation being poured into the ocean and the iaea has even mentioned that they believe this has a negligible impact i think the issue is japan does need to try harder to explain what it's doing and why it believes it's safe and clearly the memo that japan thinks the I, the, basically, the IAEA uh, and its ties with the U.S. Uh, shared with the region is just not getting through. And I think Prime Minister Rashida's team has more fence mending to do in the region to basically make the argument that what Japan is doing is not irresponsible.
0: And will the, uh, the seafood ban that Hong Kong and presumably other countries are going to uh, impose as well, will that have an impact?
1: it will have an impact on the economy certainly i mean japan at the moment is experiencing slow growth and the highest inflation in 30 years i mean i know that japan recently had a a gdp number that was above consensus but generally things are flatlining inflation is rising so anything that creates fresh headwinds for trade is uh, is unwelcome at this moment and it, it will add to basically the political headaches that prime minister Kushida is dealing with in 2023
0: Mm. Okay. Well, let's switch our attention to uh, a Japanese company, SoftBank. <coughs> um, it's filed, it's going to spin off Arm, which is the UK chip designer that SoftBank um, owns for a listing on the NASDAQ, could have a valuation of about 60 billion to 70 billion US dollars. So it could be the biggest IPO in the US since Alibaba um, in 2014. I mean, this is a big deal, isn't it? And for all sorts of reasons, for SoftBank, also for the NASDAQ um, as well, and, and for
1: Arm. Yes, it's a very big deal, I mean, also for SoftBank, because in many ways, SoftBank's had a rough few years, right? I mean, SoftBank mm-hmm. has pumped about $140 billion worth of investment into startups that haven't really paid off for the most part. So you've seen the Vision Fund retrenching to some extent. And basically, this is the Vision Fund's moment where it can rebuild itself. I mean, basically, you know, uh, it, it's a chance for, basically, for Mr. Song, Masayoshi Son to rebuild his, his economic coffers, if you will, to chase new deals. And so, in many ways, the, the Vision Fund's outlook for the next year or two depends very, very heavily on this IPO. It will dictate how aggressively SoftBank and the Vision Fund can invest in startups. And that's why it's it's a global story. It's a bigger story than just SoftBank and, and ARM. It actually matters for, basically, entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley to Seoul to Jakarta to Bangalore.
3: Mm.
0: Has the Vision Fund been overrated? I mean, you, you hear a lot of talk about, you know, that it's one of the biggest technology funds in the world, but its performance has not been that great, really, has it, despite all the, the hype and the talk about it?
1: Exactly. I mean, one of the questions is you know, the extent to which Mr. Son has been throwing a billion dollars here and a billion dollars there. He's created this kind of island of misfit toys, if you will, this, this, this portfolio of companies that I'm not sure that even SoftBank has figured out what to do with. It hardly helped that in the last few years, Mr. Son's biggest bet was on WeWork, which is a company that I'm not even sure is, is, is around at the moment. I know they still have an office in Tokyo, but I'm not sure if it's thriving. So that was a very big blunder. And so in many ways, the SoftBank is trying to figure out what it wants to be when it grows up. And what's interesting is Mr. Son, of course, has been spanning the globe looking for investors for a second and third vision fund. And so in many ways, a lot rides on this IPO and, and the extent to which this rearms the vision fund to, to continue investing in startups.
0: I'm wondering also how investors are going to take this because the IPO um, environment hasn't been great over the last uh, couple of years in the US or anywhere else. There's also been a lot of focus on Arm's exposure to China because there is Arm China, which it has absolutely no control over at all, has no representatives on the, on the board um, at a time when there's a, a lot of scrutiny um, uh, about companies' investments in, in China. I'm wondering how much that might put investors off
1: Well, you're right. I mean, Arm China really is everything in terms of arms profitability at this point. I mean, the optimistic case, of course, is that Arm sits at the center of the long-term AI boom. You know, the idea that it makes this energy efficient, uh, this energy efficient technology that uh, allows for the making of efficient energy chips um, for data centers and that sort of thing. And so that's the optimistic case. However, it's hard to see how Arm makes a whole lot of money in the interim, while we're waiting for the future to happen. And its model is still based on licensing and royalties, not in changing the world and on, you know, Arm China, as you mentioned. And so the other problem, too, is that SoftBank wants to keep a very tight grip over Arm going forward, which is raising governance concerns. And so in some ways, the valuation that we're seeing is a bit more fantasy than fact. I mean, I could be wrong about that, but I think there are a lot of clouds on the horizon.
0: Mm, it seems there are some risks here that this IPO may not do as well as either SoftBank or, or other people want.
1: Absolutely. And at a moment when the global financial system is sort of, you know, is, I wouldn't say it's, we're teetering on an edge, but it, and certainly 2023 has not turned out as well as people hope. Certainly China's is slowing. Um, U.S. inflation is still a bit higher than people had hoped. And we're not really sure what the Fed is doing. So uh, I would say a big IPO miss at this moment it's not what the NASDAQ would be hoping for in New York or stocks in Tokyo and Seoul and Singapore. So a lot is riding on this. You make a good point.
0: Mm, okay, let's switch topics for a little bit. Just get your thoughts on the BRICS summits that's uh, starting in uh, South Africa. Uh, President Xi Jinping is there. He's pushing uh, the BRICS to become a much more uh, stronger economic force and also a political force as well to, uh, to rival the G7, which, of course, uh, Japan is one of the G7. What, what's the thoughts on from Japan on, on on the role of the BRICS countries?
1: Well, I mean, certainly Japan is paying very close attention to what's happening with with, with the BRICS, but I think that there are more questions than, than answers being provided at the moment in South Africa. And I think one of the, the problems that the BRICS is having uh, is the idea that, come on, let's, let's be honest here, this is all about China. This is all about a variety of, of emerging nations looking to ride China's coattails. And if China just said tomorrow, we're leaving the BRICS, the, you know, this grouping would cease to exist. I think it's wise, you can argue, that President Xi Jinping in China is trying to grow the size of BRICS. I mean, basically, there are, you know, basically, uh, by some counts, 40 countries around the world or more that are seriously vying to join the BRICS. But I think, you know, you have even uh, Jim O'Neill, who coined the phrase, He's now sort of throwing cold water on the idea of, say, a BRICS currency going forward. So if you're not getting buy-in from Mr. Jim O'Neill, who arguably created the whole thing, it's, it just raises a lot of questions about what, what the BRICS is at the moment and what they plan to be when they grow up.
0: Mm, it's hard to envisage, isn't it, a common currency across all these vastly different uh, countries, which would presumably need, it would need, a, a common central bank as well to, to manage it all. I mean, given the problems that Europe has had doing that, it, it would be an almost impossible task, surely.
1: Absolutely. And also the BRICS has a, has a Russia problem, right? I mean, in many ways, um, having uh, this incredibly, you know, basically controversial rogue state, at the centre of your economic grouping at the moment is arguably not where you want to be. I mean, certainly there's been an effort to move away from the dollar in recent years. Saudi Arabia is on board with that. The UAE is on board with that. Brazil certainly has been playing a leading role there. But a BRICS currency, the idea of these countries that arguably compete more than they cooperate, having a single currency, I mean, Europe is still trying to figure out the euro, never mind a BRICS currency. So good luck with that.
0: Mm, Okay. well, good to hear your thoughts on all of that, William. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Peter. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic.
1: You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money
0: Talk. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you tomorrow. Joining me to discuss them is Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safro
2: Group. Please join me again tomorrow. Money Talk.